you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me uh, to, where are we going to go today? To Luke. We're going to talk today a bit about, actually, let's read our, our primary text today in 1 Peter. First uh, Peter 4, 8 to 10. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. This is the word of the Lord. This is week two of a series called The Table. We want to stop over this next year. We're going to stop four times. This is the first of four times. We're just going to stop and teach a practice of Jesus. Like teach one way that we want to be. Like the, this way of life that Jesus said he, come, he came to give us. He came to show you life and life to the full. As followers of Jesus, we believe there's a certain way to live in the world. Abundant life is what it's called in the book of John. And there are practices, ways, disciplines that set followers of Jesus or should apart. In fact, many of the practices even in our world today that the larger culture we wouldn't say are uniquely Christian actually completely have their roots in in the Judeo-Christian story. And something like hospitality, eating and drinking together is one of them. And so we want to make sure that we claim, reclaim, hold tight to what is a central component of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That when someone goes, why on earth do you go somewhere on a Sunday morning and you're not at Julian's for brunch? Like, why aren't you, like, like just go do yoga. Like, I don't understand why you'd bother with all the things and the serving. You could just get in some spandex, stretch for a bit, and go home. Nothing against yoga. I know it's more than that. But why do that? Why get together? Why organize this way? Why isn't that... Well, that one of the many reasons, and there are much more important ones than this, is like, well, I just believe that being radically hospitable is a better way to live. I've been so loved that how could I not pour this back out on others? And so we thought, what a great practice in our day and age and our culture, and I'm gonna get to this in a moment, like to, to live out is this radical hospitality. So practice one, and you should have a sheet uh, there, a way of life sheet is simply the table. The way that we live and breathe and move and have our being in this city is as followers of Jesus at Sanctuary Church, we practice the way of Jesus by gathering around the table. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through, and a man, this is Luke 19, verse 1, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Little like Sunday school, like mind-blowing thing for you, in case you didn't know this. The, 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 the noun there that he was short and he could not see over the crowd, it's ambiguous in the Greek about whether it's Jesus or whether it's Zacchaeus. Doesn't change anything in the text. It's just kind of interesting. <laughs> So he ran ahead and climbed. I don't know why I think that's so fun. Climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
Hold on to that word, sinner there. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation, or as we talked about last week, healing has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came, now this is Jesus referring to himself in this title sort of given to the Messiah. He says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is not a cute story. Though again, anyone who grew up in the church, you guys know Zacchaeus, a wee little man. Wee little man was, was he? This is not a cute story. This is a dangerous story. Disruptive to the status quo. For two reasons. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. These were Jews who had basically like sold out their countrymen. These were folks that added their own fee. They were collecting taxes for Rome, which already some most scholars estimate had like a 50% tax rate or something ridiculous. And were adding on top of this and could have that reinforced because they had Rome at their back. Tax collectors were hated because they were fellow Jews who were ripping off this community that was already in exile. Tax collectors, and then this is linked often with tax collectors, right? He says, and prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. These folks that constantly Jesus is interacting with, that's constantly causing the Pharisees to grumble at them, are at the bottom of the social ladder. I've always read this text, and if you have to, and we've, we've looked at this, this script, um, this scripture in the past. I don't know about you, but I always go a little bit like rage against the machine, punk rock at this moment. I'm like, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he hangs out with the lowly, with the hurting. He hangs out with the broken. Now that's so very true. But to transpose tax collectors and prostitutes and what that was felt like who they were in the social strata onto our day and age is actually, that's not a good equivalency. It's just the folks that are beat down or that's like the homeless folks. And it's tough in our day and age to transpose this because even prostitutes, we don't really tend to have the sort of negative like view that we used to have, uh, both due to like a more merciful view uh, of folks that are trapped in that lifestyle and because honestly, we live in such a sexualized culture. So those two things, it causes us to really not have like, oh, that's cool, tax collectors, and like he hung out. This would be an equivalent if I were gonna transpose this, and this isn't just like Andrew's transposing. Right, this is like a fair amount of reading, kind of looking, how would scholars really line this stuff up? And most historians would say this would be like white nationalists who marched at, at Charlottesville. That's who Jesus is eating with. ISIS members. Might be a little extreme, but essentially this is what it is. These are the folks that are at the bottom of, this, of, of like how people, like, a pedof- a, like someone who, who struggles with pedophilia. Like these are the, these would be like the best examples of the kinds of people looking at both Rome and looking at the Jewish people who Jesus was hanging out with, how they saw them. This primary question that existed at this time, which is why eating and drinking and hospitality and then like gossip from the religious people come up is who's allowed to eat with who? One of the most subversive things that Jesus does is eat with all of the wrong people. 
In another place in the text, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, there it is again, came and ate with him and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this. They asked his disciples, why does this teacher, this rabbi, this like esteemed person, why does this pastor eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees were using meals in a particular way and they were using it to exclude. Now this is not the first time before you think, oh, that was problems back then. Right, less than 100 years ago in this country, you could see outside the doors of a diner or a coffee shop or a restaurant, no blacks allowed. Food has often been used. If you go to Nazi Germany, you look at signs around the Jewish community. So often food is used to exclude. And so for the Pharisees to sit down and eat with Gentiles... To sit down with outsiders was unthinkable. Unthinkable. Tax collectors were some of the most, they were like almost worse in some way than the Gentiles because they were one of us who betrayed us. And the sinners, I mean, these were folks that if you were a good religious leader, you believed that if we could just get holy and perfect enough, then God would rescue us from our Roman oppressor. So there were all these rules that got heaped on to Torah. If you're familiar with the scriptures and the whole story, basically these Jews in in exile were going, if we can just be more holy, if we could turn our homes into temples, if we could have one day where no one sinned and really obeyed everything in in, in the scriptures. Now part of what got linked into that is so don't have anybody who is like an outsider, who is sinful, who's been marked by some way evil, in your mind, tribally, you go, if we could keep them away and have one pure day, then maybe that would like trigger God to go, okay, finally you're taking this seriously. He would wipe the Roman oppressors out and they would come back into their land. The Messiah would come. It ended up becoming, in fact, in this twisted way, I don't have enough time to explain this morning, but almost like religion for the elites, Because to be able to eat the way the Pharisees and religious leaders wanted you to eat, it would be like me telling everybody at Sanctuary, you now have to eat full price at Whole Foods. Everybody has to if you really are holy and pure. Yeah, you can imagine that for some of you that would be a bit of a problem. For me, that would be a bit of a problem. All that to say, a rabbi in that culture, a teacher of the law, would never be caught dead in the home of somebody like Zacchaeus. One theologian I read yesterday said, Jesus got himself killed because of the people he ate with, because he ate with all the wrong people. Jesus' uh, meals were not a boundary marker, but they were the sign of God's great welcome. They weren't a way to keep people out, but they were a way to invite people in. So the last line of that text that we just read, for the son of man, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We ended our teaching last week with referencing this. We've referenced this before. There's something in the book of Luke that tells us about what Jesus came to do and then how he came. There are three ways to remind you in the Bible that this sentence is completed. The son of man came. Now this is important. Even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is all brand new to you. Like, what is it about this Jesus? What did he come to do and how did he come to do it? That's a question that folks from friends of mine that want nothing to do with the supernatural, with God, with spirituality, but have some sort of, because they're just, you know, students of history, they're interested in the person of Jesus. So what did Jesus come to do and how did he come to do it? 
So the Bible, especially the book of Luke, answers it this way. The Son of Man, Jesus, came, it says, not to be served but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then the third one is the Son of Man, Jesus, came, what? Eating and drinking. Jesus came eating and drinking. This is how he came. The first two statements are of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. That's apparently why Jesus came, or thought he came. The third is one of method. How did he come? He didn't come yelling at the street corner. He didn't come signing petitions to try to like, make America more Christian again. He came what? Tell, say it with me. Eating and Eating and drinking. This is how he comes. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say in Luke 7, here is a glutton and a drunkard. People thought Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. I don't think he was. We know he wasn't. But he did something to what? Earn that reputation, correct? We okay so far? Any of my like people coming out of fundamentalist backgrounds right now? Like, just stay with me. You're going to have a lot of tension, and then you're going to feel such freedom, you're not going to know what to do. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There it is again. So when the Pharisees invited Jesus to have him have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So now he's at the dinner of the religious elite. A woman in that town who had, been, who had lived a sinful life, which is a very almost like biblically kind and compassionate way of the writer saying she was a prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Or maybe not a prostitute, but was sexually impure in that day and age. Was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Couple context thing. A woman never in this day and age ever had her hair down. So many scholars think this is the only way she knew even how to interact with a man. She had her hair down. The only way she knows is sexualized, but she's having this actually pure moment through her sinful approach. Fascinating. When the Pharisees who had invited him they invited him over his house for dinner, and he, they are li- Jesus is literally letting the very person that they are like, you got to keep these people out of sight. we got to be holy and pure and blameless if God's ever going to do anything good in our community. And Jesus is letting them into the house. One Pharisee saw this, and he said, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were legit, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman he is, she is and that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. I, a lot of people believe Jesus had a keen sense of humor. It doesn't translate into the English as well, but here's what Jesus then says. All right, Simon, this is his buddy's disciple. Imagine this. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more. It's a pretty simple story, right? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Y'all following me here? Someone forgives $5 a debt, someone forgives 5,000. The 5,000 person in theory is gonna be way more grateful. Jesus says, 
you have judged correctly. Again, I like to think he's just winking at him. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which would have been a normal practice. You're walking around in open-toed sandals on dusty, dirty, muddy streets. When a guest and a rabbi comes into your home, you have one of the servants come in or somebody else and you wash each other's, or you, you would wash their feet. So he's like, you didn't even extend to me basic cultural hospitality. She comes in, wets my feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. Again, a normal thing. We see the song, we're like, what is going on here? Like this would have been a normal thing. You come and you greet one another. Any Italians in the room? You know what I'm talking about, right? You greet each other with a kiss. If you walk into your house and you do not kiss your mother on the lips, there's gonna be a problem. She's gonna ask you what's going on. You didn't extend a kiss to me, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. It would have been a normal thing, a little refresher, just a little blot of oil. But she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, the stories that we've just read about Jesus eating and drinking with sinners are the rule, not the exception. Before you think this is just one text we're highlighting, Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors. Listen, look how food is used in the book of Luke. 50 references, I'm gonna go through a few. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Luke 10, Jesus eats at the home of Mary and Martha. Fascinating moment where we learn about Jesus' view about women and how they should learn, right? Jesus, the redemptive ark, we see women being more and more liberated through scripture. The Bible is one of the most proactive pieces of ancient literature. Even if you're here and not a Christian, don't believe it's the word of God that is a liberating text for those under power, including women. Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor and their meals rather than their friends. Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with the two disciples in Emmaus and he eats fish with the disciples after he rises from the dead. The uh, scholar author Boris says, if you can read the gospels without getting hungry, you're not paying attention. If you're really reading the story of Jesus and you're not like, mm, I need a glass of wine, I need some cheese, like you're not reading it. The son of man came eating and drinking. That was Jesus's methodology. That was how he moved in the world. And he lived in a culture where a lot of people were hostile to him. Hostile to his message. And so how did Jesus invite people into this bigger story? How did he help convince them there's a better way? How did he convince them, look, God loves you and his grace is upon you and he saved you and rescued you and you're adopted into his family. How did he show them that the kingdom of God, the way of heaven was breaking forth right here and now? He did it one meal at a time. One meal at a time. This was his method for bearing witness to the truth. This was his method for that word that I know makes a lot of you have an allergic reaction, but evangelism. This is how he shared the good news. I have a problem with evangelism too. It's, it, it, 
I have like PTSD and it's not just from like Christian evangelism, right? Everybody's evangelizing. I can't go to like the local bookstore without someone telling me if you don't fill this out right now, like all the whales are gonna like die. If I don't fill this out right now, right? Anyone do uh, essential oils? Come on, it's like a bait and switch. Like, come on in. Like network marketing, Amway. It's just like Tupperware, updated. Come on over, we're just gonna hang out. No, there's no product. <laughs> Buy some stuff. If you, I'm kidding, essential, I'm all for it. No, no hate on essential oils. Network marketing. Right, we're all like, there's, everybody is pushing. Everybody in this day and age, you can't believe that. You've gotta believe this. Just look at your Twitter feed and ask the question, is evangelism a Christian thing? Or is everybody just have a desire to like share what they believe to be true? And so how we do that is important, which is why it bugs many of us when we see followers of Jesus trying to share the story of God's grace and love and forgiveness in these ways that don't reflect the message. Right? That bother anybody else? Driving past Brown University two weeks ago, seeing people with these signs that aren't even like, like texts. They're like yelling about evolution and sexual identity questions on big placards telling people they're gonna burn. I had to pull over because that's my personality. Those of you who know me, not always wise, but you know, I'm gonna think, I'm gonna reason with them. We'll reason together. These are my brother. There was no reasoning. But the one thing I realized that caught them in that moment is you guys realize I have no scripture on any of these cards. There's not one thing about Jesus in any of this. The medium is the message. It matters how Jesus came. What we learn from Jesus is that if you wanna love those who've been hurt by the church, and maybe that's some of you in here today, who've had a bad experience in the past and feel like you don't measure up, who are born in what you feel like is the wrong home or the wrong scenario or the wrong social or the wrong economic environment, somebody who for whatever reason wants nothing to do with Jesus wants nothing to do with this understanding of love. Jesus' answer would be open your home, eat, drink. And if you don't have one, which do what Jesus did. Just invites himself over for dinner. <laughs> Seen it work. So when you eat, you know, talk small talk. That's an expression of love. But I wanna encourage us in this practice as we're continuing to develop this over these next couple weeks leading into Thanksgiving. Last week, we talked about the power of that, of that table. And this week, just unpacking for a moment, this going deeper in the realm of hospitality that realize when we gather together around the table, talk about the meaning of life. Don't just, don't just talk though, ask questions and really listen. Meet people where they are at. Love people and invite them to experience what you've experienced. Bear witness around the table. This kind of eating and drinking is what writers in the scriptures call hospitality. Now, we talked about this for a moment last week, I believe, but the word hospitality is philoxenos. In the Greek, it's a compound word, philoxenos. So philo means love. So think of philo Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love. And then xenos means stranger, foreigner, immigrant, refugee, outsider, basically just guest. 
So think about like xenophobia. Anyone know what xenophobia is? The opposite of hospitality. It's the fear or the phobia of the stranger, of the outsider, of the immigrant, of the migrant, of a caravan. It's a fear. It's a fear of the outsider. Xenophobia. Hospitality is literally love of the stranger, love of the outsider. The outsider, the immigrant, the refugee, the guest. Rosaria Butterfield defined hospitality as something that turns strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. And so hospitality is first and foremost a heart posture that leaks then into your life. It's a heart posture, your budget, your time and tangible acts. This is what when we come together on a Sunday morning at 9.30 before many of you arrive, we do a little rally with all of teams and we remind each other what we're doing and we literally use the words, we're setting a table for everybody to come in. It's a way to express welcome. And it's key to note that followers of Jesus are commanded to do this. We don't talk a lot about commands. Jesus is constantly inviting people, inviting people, inviting people. Hey, you can choose life or death. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, so if you're, out, if you're not a follower of Jesus right now, you're still making sense of this, what I'm about to say is not for you. If you're here and you call yourself a Christian, you are literally commanded to practice love of the stranger. Let me prove it to you. First Peter, let's go with Romans 12 first. Romans 12, 13, Paul writes, practice hospitality. The word practice, diacontis, one lexicon defines it as, quote, to do something with intense effort and with a definite purpose or goal. It can be translated, and it is maybe in some of your Bibles, eager to show hospitality. First Peter 1, 8, our central text here, above all, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. That's great. I love that verse. Yeah, love covers a multitude of sins. That's the verse you like put on a card and you're not sure what it means, but it sounds good. And then verse nine, how do you do that? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. How, how does love cover a multitude of sins? Offer hospitality. And I love the addition. Do it without grumbling. Where are my introverts in the room? Quietly go, yeah, it's me. <laughs> right? This is like the, the folks, like when, when everyone's staying late and you're just like, hey, uh, like, like I'm, uh, people are welcome to stay as late as they want. Anyone in your home, home group or around dinner say that? And what that really means is like, could you leave in 10 to 15 minutes? I love to keep going. My wife and I have this thing. If you've ever come and eaten dinner with us, you know this. My wife um, at about uh, 9.30, you say, Corey? About 9.30, we'll set this up at the beginning and just say, hey, at about 9.30. So actually at the beginning of the meal, we'll say, Corey, we'll go, hey guys, you truly can stay as late as you want. At 9.30, I'm just gonna disappear. And I'm gonna go to bed. And I love you and you can stay however long Andrew stays up. All right, I just love, like, I mean, it's said a little more eloquently than that, but that's essentially it. How many of you have been to our house and you've seen this happen? Yeah, Corey just all of a sudden is like, hey guys, good night, keep going. And she just goes away. So any of you introverts who need to do that, that's at least a way to do it without grumbling. You do need another spouse who will stay with you. 
Right, how many of you grumble when you got home church and it's always that person who only brings chips and salsa. You're like, hey, bring stuff for a meal. And all they do is bring chips and salsa. Anyone got one of those in their home group? No, that's good. Anyone have a home church that's all anyone brings is chips and salsa? (laughs) Don't grumble. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others. Your home, your apartment, your culinary ability, your time. Be stewards then it ends of God's grace. Generosity is kindness, is favor in all these various forms. One other place, in 1 Timothy and in Titus, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Titus 1, the practice of hospitality is a job requirement and a character list for leaders. So if you're a leader, and I would put this obviously first and foremost on myself and our elders, you have to practice, practice hospitality in order to lead in the church. I've heard of pastors being kicked out for like bad use of money. I've heard pastors being kicked out because of their, like, their, their posture toward power or infidelity. I've never heard of a pastor being booted because they don't practice hospitality. Did you know that Andrew hasn't had anyone over his house in like three months? Just being biblical here. Again, this is just the followers of Jesus. You should probably get the ax or someone should confront you if you're a leader and you have not done this. This is just how important it is. That's why I mentioned that example. We are commanded to carry on this practice from Jesus. And let's be honest, it's a great one. It's a great one. One of the things I love about this practice is it's so ordinary and so pregnant with potential. There's so much potential. Rosaria Butterfield, who I've quoted a bunch of times in the last two weeks, is a fascinating case study in all of this. I wanna tell you a bit of her story as we get ready to end here soon. She was basically this very, in her words, far left radical feminist. She also happened to be a lesbian, was a tenured professor at Syracuse University with a specialty in postmodern critical theory and literature. She was writing a book on Bible-believing Christians and how they're basically the worst. How they are a threat and a menace to society. As a part of her research, she actually had to meet a few Bible-believing Christians. And one of the first things she wrote was an editorial in the New Yorker. And she wrote a scathing indictment of this men's conference. Just as everything she was against, some Christian men's conference, she went to it, she explored it, she met with people, she talked to people, and she's like this, yep, I was right, they are the worst. So this local pastor wrote in a letter, and it was really, really gracious and thoughtful, and at the end of the letter, it's like a letter to the editor, at the end of the letter, uh, he said, you are more than welcome to come over our house for dinner, we'd love to have you over. That's how the letter ended. So she felt like, well, I have to do this research for this big thing I'm doing. Anyway, I might as well go over and see this person, right? So she tells a story. She writes about this in her new book, driving into the driveway, sitting there thinking, am I crazy? This person is the enemy. He has everything I am against. So she walks through the front door and then she just begins to write about her experience in this book. And she talks about this love that it is expressed and this welcome that is expressed meal in and meal out. She kept going back for meals because she's doing research and she found herself just wanting to go back. She came back for dinner again and again and it led to Bible study and then she started coming to church. Long story short, she, again, this is not the end product of the story, but it's an interesting end where she ends up uh, marrying a Presbyterian pastor outside of Duke University. She's a foster parent and they run a Christian commune out of their house. Uh, Incredibly bright writer. And near as I can tell, her central message is the LGBTQ community does a way better job at hospitality than the church in the West when we should be masters of it. She writes this, radical, 
radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. How about that last line, right? Hold on one second. The gospel comes with a house key. All right, I just felt like I had to do that. This is, this is, this is like, for some of us, we all are nodding. Yeah, of course. Now retrace the calendar and who's been over. I don't mean this for like shame or guilting anybody. I just mean we should be masters of this. This is why we love worship. We're reminded I have been given everything. I'm so thankful. Everything I have is a gift. God is so good. I'm just a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I am so loved by the God of the universe. I get to join him in putting this world back together. My Savior, the way that he comes into the world was eating and drinking. I can do that. I can do that. Whether it's ramen or I'm inviting someone over for dinner or it looks like some overdone kinfolk like spread. Yeah, you don't, it doesn't have to look like kinfolk. It should be hospitality. The gospel comes with a, a house key. This isn't entertainment. Entertainment is essentially about exclusion. You can kind of tell when you fall like on like so the social hierarchy and who's going to what party. Hospitality is about inclusion. It's an open table where all are welcome. Entertainment's about performance. Check out my like culinary skills. Look how good and Instagrammable this is. Look at how much money I had to buy nice ingredients, all organic. Um, look at how much wine I was able to buy. It's the good stuff. I didn't even need to turn any water into wine. Like you're, you're circling friends like, no, there's, oh, I love going into their dinner parties. I'm not against any of that, but that's not hospitality. That's just entertainment. Those two things could be mixed, but hospitality is about service. It's about tangible love. With entertainment, there's a clear line between host and guest. Entertainment, you know who the hosts are, you know who the guests are. Hospitality blurs the line. What I love about the stories of Jesus at a meal, wherever he went, Jesus was both host and guest. He always came both to give and to receive, which invites others to the table. It's not just a let me serve you. That's the pattern when you show up at a home group, at a home church. Doesn't matter if you live in your mom's basement you go over to the same house every single week and you come as a host and you come as a guest. You come to contribute to the discussion. You bring a little food. You come just to be there and to, to contribute to other people's experiencing of the way of Jesus. Hospitality is a way of life. It's a way of life. We talked about food last week. I wanna show you a couple pictures. Can we just fly through these real quick? This was just what popped up just on social media. This was from Evan at uh, the Newport Home Church. If you keep preaching all this table talk, we're gonna need a bigger house, right? There was this sense of all this invitation. We've seen somebody already come to like become a follower of Jesus, right? In the last like, couple weeks. I believe she's even here somewhere. Um, right, they're seeing folks like this is a place, they're never gonna show up on a Sunday morning. That's not their speed. Or they're probably not, or it feels a little disconnected, but people who are joining in. This story is representative of a couple things that are happening in home groups right now. Next slide. 
This was, oh, just to talk about hospitality, this is the same group, Darian and Emily up front, just before they're about to get married, everyone laying hands on them and praying for them and blessing them as they go. This is what hospitality and community looks like. Next slide. This was uh, friends there. Go to the next slide after this. Friends eating. This was the post. Break bread, pour wine, dwell in unity, feeling so inspired and blessed by the message shared by somebody. I have learned about the power of a table in a home, the power of communion and community, the utter simplicity but immense love that comes from a meal shared with like-minded companions. I'll say it until I can't anymore. Hospitality is more than a mere industry. It goes beyond taste and beyond aesthetic. Real acts of hospitality ignite joy and comfort for the soul. Loneliness is the leprosy of our modern world, Mother Teresa said, so let's devote ourselves to fellowship. Let there be no needy among us. Thank you to all my Providence folks that I was able to share a table with, to live, love, and serve around one is to truly live the way of Jesus. That's strong. This is what happens when our church gets engaged. When we begin, we find healing in our own hearts and souls. Last slide. Somebody else decided, hey, you know what? Let's um, start a, a love feast. We talked about how the churches were actually called love feasts. This is the language that was given to them. So these are friends who have a real hunger and a desire to reach out to those, again, that probably would never like come to the doors of a church. Specifically, I love this. I hate to use the word targeting, but just going like, who are the folks that like need a meal and need a conversation, who need some love that we could just bless and serve? Many of you know Emily and Chris, this is their hearts. November 16th, apparently some of you are welcome to come. Hospitality was already, we're gonna, you can invite the band up here, we're gonna finish. Hospitality was already a high value in the ancient areas of the Middle East. It is still to this day, but where Jesus made a not so subtle tweak was instead of aiming hospitality upward as a way to curry favor with those ahead of you, he aimed it downward as a way to serve and do justice for the poor and bring others into the life of heaven. And that's what changed the world. I'm gonna talk about that next week. Food is justice. Jesus' heart, his compassion is for the lost, is ours. And before you get mad at me for using that word, before you think, oh, Jesus, you should have chose a different word. I know many of us have mixed feelings about that. Maybe it's offensive to you. It sounds like, you know, I don't know. What are you saying? Like, you're, you're so found. The more I think about Jesus's language of loss, the more I love it. Jesus is amazing because he is assuming the best of people. He's assuming the best of people. Just think about it. Lost people aren't immoral, not bad. They're not unintelligent. Everybody gets lost at some point. My buddy gets lost every time he comes to Providence. Lost people rarely want to be lost. Most lost people I run into are searching for a right path. They're searching for destination. They're trying to make sense of it. It makes sense that Jesus would call people who had yet to find the way of life lost. And Jesus said he came to quote, seek and save the lost to seek and save, like proactive, like I'm coming for you with all the grace and love I can, to open the door and spread out the welcome mat to the Father's house and to invite people in off the street to eat and drink around the Father's table. 
And if they wanted to be adopted into the father's family as brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, he did that by eating and drinking, by moving one meal at a time. The table, may our tables be safe places to express the welcome and love of God. There is power here before you just dismiss this out of hand as just a nice principle. I wanna share one more story. Taffy Bradesier Ackner, I believe I'm saying that name right, a writer for GQ. Uh, culturally Jewish, very progressive, tells a story of meeting with a fairly famous pastor in New York City. Wants to interview him, do this expose. As she's walking with this pastor and learning more about what believes, realizing there's all these places where, oh, I really believe this stuff. And there's all these places of deep tension. Like, I don't think that at all. How could you think that? But she's realizing the more and more she goes over their house and eats with the family and eats with the kids and gets to know other people in the community and eats with them and is hanging out with them. You gotta read this article. It's amazing. She's just like walking through this and you sense this tension in her as she's exploring what is up with this weird church that's blowing up in New York. I, I, I like everything in my body is like allergic to this in one sense and so drawn to it in the other. This is how she ends an, art, an article. The article in GQ, this is a, two, a year and a half ago. The last time I saw Pastor Carl, we stood in the driveway of his home and said our final goodbye. And he put his hand on my shoulder and told me that he just knew the Lord would lead me in telling the story of their church. He asked that I get it all right, that I also make sure that the people understand that these were some difficult matters he had difficult opinions on and that he was trusting me to tell everyone the message. That if we knew Jesus, if we really knew him, we would understand these opinions too. That no opinion he holds should prevent them from seeking peace at his church where they are welcome and already loved. But that if we had these same opinions, we could live good lives that we would live here in God's kingdom and on earth. What could be better than that? He wanted to know. What could be better than the life he had presented to me? I promised him I'd tell the whole story, that I'd do my best, and he told me that his church would be my church and his church family would be my church family. And I pressed my lips together and nodded and didn't say anything because I was crying then. We hugged and I wiped my eyes on his motorcycle jacket, which was covering the same chest Justin Bieber had cried into that day. Long story. And it made a leather on leather sound when he hugged me back. And that next Sunday, the article was written. I didn't go back to church because my story was done. And instead I went to soccer games with my children and ordered pizza. And at the end of the evening, I cleaned my kitchen and I bent down to place dinner plates into the dishwasher. And as I did, I hummed the music of this church to myself. And then I straightened up suddenly and I looked out the window into the dark nothing. And I realized that I missed them all very much. I just share that with you because here's somebody who, maybe you feel like that there's no way the people in my life, the people I, I interact with and, and do life with would ever be open to the way of Jesus. Maybe you're here right now and you're hearing all this and you're just wondering like, like why, why am I so both repelled and so drawn in by this person of Jesus? There's something about this practice of coming to the table that heals that invites, that lowers defenses and allows people to be open, to be open, to be open. 
Here's someone who has a lot to lose confessing in front of all on a national publication saying, I cried because I miss this family. Our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing, radiating the light of heaven, and our dinner tables are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. And our churches, people should find rest from their battle for acceptance and release from the lie that they are nothing more than the goods they possess. So let's do it. Jesus Christ, Son of God, we thank you as we come to the table now. As we come to take the bread and the cup now, we thank you, God, for all that it reminds us of. Your body broken, your blood poured out, the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, this morning, I pray that as we come, you, like you did last week for many of us, bring to light those that need to be welcomed in. That you would bring to mind those in our life, Lord, that need to experience just the healing of you. Not our amazing hospitality, not our amazing meal, not our great table, but you would just stir in us an appreciation, a thanksgiving for the gift that we have received. God, I lift up those in this room right now who uh, reaching out to their neighbor or caring for those that are hurting around them in the city is actually not a first concern. Like their home life is falling apart. There's a lot of tension at home. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of brokenness who need to experience the healing of, of, of the Christian community, of family. I pray now, Lord, over brunches that might take place after church. I pray now, God, over home groups this week. I pray now over impromptu dinners. Lord, I pray over Chris and Emily's love feast. I pray, Lord, that um, those that are just in need of, of your healing touch, God, would find it this week. There are so many, Lord, that you have just brought so much healing for in this family, and I'm just overwhelmed sometimes. So as we come, as a body, as a people, celebrating that you, God of the universe, the love and logic behind everything, broke yourself open and poured yourself out for our healing, that we get to break ourselves open pour ourselves out God for the healing of our friends and our neighborhoods our streets so we come to the table